What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Will. Hi, everybody. On this Friday, here's what's ahead of us. The opening and closing of America. Disney is set to open its doors in Orlando, even as the state is one of the worst COVID hotspots. Meanwhile, Las Vegas could be on the verge of closing down its restaurants. We have full details on the re- and de-openings coming up. Plus, shares of Tesla have now more than tripled this year, and there's fresh talk of adding it to the S&P 500. Classic sign of a top, or will it have real staying power? We'll debate that. And is TikTok's time in America running out? One analyst says he's not buying that the government will really block ByteDance. It's all ahead this hour, but we do begin with these markets as the major indices look to close out the week. On a positive note, Bob Bassani here with the numbers. Bob? And uh, Kelly, we are closing out on a positive note. We are off of the highs, but take a look at the major indexes. Uh, The S&P 500 up about 1% for the week. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up maybe a little bit less than that. But Disney, Apple, Walmart, all have been big movers for the Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, this week. Uh, We were just off of the highs. I want to show you the S&P intraday here because we were at 3170 a little more than an hour ago. There were some comments made by the president that the U.S.-China relationship was damaged uh, and that the phase two trade deal was not much of a priority. Maybe not a big surprise, but we did come off of the highs and, as you can see, uh, have started rising again in the middle of the day here. Sectors, a little bit of a reversal for today compared to what we've had this week. So the value stocks are doing a little bit better today. I'm talking about bank stocks, for example, uh, industrial names, uh, transports, uh, the Russell 2000 small caps doing a little better. And for once, the semis are underperforming, but not by a lot. Remember, the answer to everything is by semiconductors, it seems like. In terms of movers, uh, Gilead actually moved the S&P futures 20 points at 830 when they announced an analysis suggesting remdesivir could reduce COVID-19 deaths. That was a big mover. Uh, Carnival Corp, surprisingly said, continues to see strong demand for new bookings in 2021. However, uh, better June sales over at Taiwan Semiconductor suggests some upside there for the second quarter. As I said before, guys, the answer to any problem out there is let's buy semiconductors because the market believes that even if the reopening is choppy, tech is going to be a winner. Guys, back to you. Bob, you're an intrepid traveler. Would you book a cruise for 2021? No. Um, and I declined to uh, go to Florida, fly to Florida, visit my father. Um, and um, I have been very cautious about going out. I would like to get better news. I'd love to hear about a, a perfect, uh, you know, uh, filter. Yeah. But I haven't heard it yet. No, I haven't either. And that's what I find so interesting about the resilience of some of that demand. Bob, have a great weekend, sir. Thank you. Okay. Bob Bassani with the latest on the markets there. Meanwhile, yesterday, Joe Biden released his Buy American Economic Plan, and today President Trump, as a Democratic nominee, plagiarized his 2016 strategy. Elon Moy is here now with more of the details. Elon? Well, Kelly, Biden's economic plan is called Build Back Better, and the centerpiece is a $700 billion investment in domestic manufacturing. $300 billion would go to R&D, $400 billion would go to federal procurement. But today, President Trump told reporters that Biden's populist tone sounds awfully familiar. He plagiarized from me. 
but he can never pull it off. He likes plagiarizing. Uh, it's a plan that uh, is very radical left, but he said the right things because he's copying what I've done. Now, in laying out his platform yesterday, Biden argued that he will focus on middle class families, while President Trump's policies have mainly been aimed at Wall Street. Throughout this crisis, Donald Trump has been almost singularly focused on the stock market, the Dow and Nasdaq. Not you, not your families. Now, Kelly, both men have also sparred over how hard to go on China. You heard President Trump today talk about his skepticism over moving forward with a phase two trade deal with China. We will see how Joe Biden responds. Back over to you. All right, Elon, thank you. Elon Moy with the latest there. On this final trading day of the week, the market seemingly shrugging off the record number of COVID cases and the Trump-Biden back and forth about the election. These major averages are on uh, track for a second straight week of gains. Dow's up 218 right now. Have we entered a new bull market for stocks? Let's ask my next guest. Hugh Johnson is chairman and chief investment officer at Hugh Johnson Advisors. And Elena Hernandez is principal at Gentrust. It's great to have you both here. Uh, Hugh, is it you who thinks this is a new bull market? Yeah, there's no question in my mind. It's a bull market. It started in March. It started in response to investors getting the idea that, uh, yes, we had a bad March and a bad April for the economy, but it would recover. We saw the numbers in May. We saw the numbers in June. We'll see the numbers in July and going forward. There won't be as good as May and June, but they'll be positive. And we'll get good earnings numbers when we get to 2021. That's what bull markets are all about. They start up in, in really in anticipation of better economic numbers, better earnings numbers, and that's what lies ahead. Now, we have, to some extent, gotten ahead of ourselves very far, very fast, a little bit overvalued, and there's lots of risk. But it's a bull market with lots of risk. Elena, let's talk about some of the options people have when they're looking for yield. They're looking for some kind of rate of return these days, and they don't want to take too, too much risk. Where do you suggest that they go to find that? Yeah, also Gentrus, we've been working on uh, fixed income replacement strategies. Pretty much, as you said, very, high to, very hard to find yield when you have five-year rates, you know, around 28 basis points, single A corporate index trading around 90 basis points, right? When you think about default rates, um, expected to be around 72 basis points, um, and peak default rates can go even up to 1% in single A corporates, you realize that's almost a year's worth of interest. So what we've been doing is look, uh, analyze the situation, especially after this 100-plus rally we've had in treasuries and in corporate credit be- be- because of the Fed support, and we've been implementing fixed income replacement strategies in our clients' portfolio, which we're overlaying um, some option strategies that act and behave like bonds, having negative correlation to risk as well as some income production to uh, our clients' diversified portfolios. Yeah, I mean, Hugh, I think this illustrates the conundrum a lot of people are in. You know, everything you're describing about the stock market is well and good if you have a little bit longer time horizon. But if you're at retirement, in retirement, your options are basically stay exposed more heavily to the stock market and the volatility that that may engender. Elena just outlined some fixed income strategies that involve options and and different things to try to get a little bit better risk reward there. I mean, it's it's a tough environment. What, What would your advice be? Well, my first advice would be if you've got a five to 10 year horizon, you don't want to reduce significantly reduce your exposure to equities 
in your portfolio because that's basically saying I want to reduce my return and therefore the amount of money you can withdraw from your portfolio. Unless, of course, you can't sleep at night. If you can't sleep at night, then if your target for equities is, say, 50% of your portfolio, maybe you reduce it for the time being at 40 to 40%, but you get it back up to 50% when the dust starts to clear. The other thing in your portfolios you want to do is if you feel that way, and I certainly understand if somebody feels very worried about the current environment, particularly with the risks that are involved, what you do is you add or you keep a little bit of defense in the portfolio, which means stocks that pay good dividends, stocks like Pfizer, Cisco, Intel. Uh, those are technology stocks, but they're really part of a dividend strategy. So keep a little defense. Yeah. But, but for one, and you got to move a little bit towards offense. So companies like Alphabet, it's a good investment as you shift towards offense. Or a company like MasterCard or J.P. Morgan, which we've added recently. So keep some defense, but shift a little bit towards offense in anticipation of the dust clearing in a better equity market environment. Elena, does anybody come to you worried about higher uh, interest rates at this point, or is that like totally out the window? And, and the, the main question is, is this low rate environment, how long it's going to persist? What do you guys think about it? Are we going to be stuck with this for years? I think the market is telling us with bond volatility being so low right now, whilst equity volatility is kind of still in the high end of the range, if we look historically over the last five years, the bond market is telling us, yes, we're going to have low rates for a longer time. I think also that has been aggravated by the fact of the tough time we've had with reopenings, right, to, to, for the market to forecast how quickly we can come back from this crisis. So we are expecting for rates to stay low for a long time. We have seen some concerns in terms of investors thinking about the trade of potential reflation or inflation coming back. And that's why back in March, when break-evens looked pretty attractive, we added some of um, inflation-linked uh, strategies um, to our portfolios to just prepare for that. I think, as you said, you have to ensure that portfolios right now are diversified for very different potential paths uh, that this economic recovery might have. And let's not forget, we have elections coming up. Yeah. We've seen volatility pick up already, you know, through even after elections, a couple of weeks after, as the market expects that maybe we don't have such a clean election. We might have mail-in ballots and mm -hmm. might have delayed results, etc. And also we've seen uh, Trump's uh, comments today about a potential, again, pickup in U.S.-China uh, uh, relations in terms of, of a problematic pickup on that. So we have a lot of risk in the market, and we just have to ensure that we help investors navigate them and have diversified portfolios that could work with different potential paths. Yeah, you have to be ready for anything, 27 different outcomes. That's right. Uh, That's Elena right. Hernandez, Hugh Johnson, it's nice to speak with you today. Thanks so much. Thank you for having Pleasure. me. We appreciate it. Coming up, Disney World is set to reopen tomorrow in a bold move as COVID cases surge in Florida. We're going to look at their strategy and just how crucial the theme parks are to Disney's bottom line. Plus, bye-bye bars and maybe restaurants. Nevada forced to de-open some parts of its economy as cases spike. The details and what it could mean for the casino stocks when the exchange returns. This is The Exchange on CNBC.
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. New coronavirus infections are spreading across the U.S., especially in the American South and West. Johns Hopkins University reporting a record single-day spike of more than 63,000 cases yesterday. The pandemic forcing American Century Investments to hold its annual Celebrity Golf Tournament without any spectators this year. Joining me now to discuss that and more is Jonathan Thomas. He is the president and CEO of American Century Investments, a very familiar name to our audience. It's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, first of all, what happens if all these celebrities get coronavirus at your tournament? I, I, I'm amazed they're all showing up. It shows they must feel pretty good about uh, the conditions there. Well, a couple of things on that point. Um, these folks all throughout the year have been contacting me and the folks at NBC and encouraging us to have this, uh, this event. Uh, these are competitive, hyper-competitive people <laughs> that are starving to get out and compete and uh, uh, we've just received a tremendous amount of accolades. Of course, we do want to make sure they feel respected and protected as well. So we've taken pretty extreme measures here this year to uh, make sure that they are safe. We've eliminated crowds. We've significantly reduced the press. We don't have any of their friends or family on the course. So it's just a small fraction of the, and there are all sorts of medical checks throughout the entire uh, venue to ensure that nobody's uh, been infected by the disease. Tony Romo, the, the reigning, I think, two-time champ. Steph Curry, Charles Barkley, Aaron yeah. Rodgers. You've got Patrick Mahal. I'm just saying, if anything happens to these guys, Jonathan, uh, no, seriously, this is a, quite an elite gathering. And, and golf, we've been told, being outside is one of the safest ways. You know, get that fresh air, be in the sunlight. You're not in indoor spaces. Tell us, because a lot of people watching are also in the events business or trying to figure out what they can do uh, to make everybody feel comfortable with the pandemic this year. You described a few of the things like medical checks. What else have you done uh, to keep things safe and comfortable? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So uh, there are, uh, we've outsourced a, uh, the health checks to a company called MedCorp. They're doing uh, daily screenings, daily temperature checks, daily questionnaires. You have to get a band to get into the premises that change colors each day. Uh, there are all sorts of socially distanced uh, uh, requirements. Uh, the evenings here that are typically full of dinners and events have been uh, eliminated. Um, all of the venues, uh, the, the capacities have been reduced by at least 50 percent. Uh, masks have been distributed. And I mean, there, there are, every person has come up to me and actually said, thank you for having it. And then also <laughs> thank you for protecting us. They're extremely appreciative for what we've done. Yeah. And for that sense and, of And NBC, thing. too. And they've really stepped up. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, no, yes. for sure. And, and that, again, people are now looking for the it, it's reassuring to see golf events return. It's reassuring to be able to watch stuff you watched in previous years, even if it is a little bit different this year. Um, you know, I, I should ask you about the markets since you're here, just about how business overall has, a, you know, your yeah. company has been affected by the pandemic, kind of what you see going on with clients out there. What's the main takeaway to you this year from this pandemic and everything else going on? 
Yeah, so obviously the corrections in March were very severe. The rebound has been significant. You know, as, I, as a CEO, I don't actually manage money, but I talk to our people almost every day. And the general sentiment seems to be that we are lined up for a slow and extended recovery in the markets. Uh, I think there's a belief, though, that the markets have priced in a little bit more of a sharper recovery uh, than what we think is probably going to ultimately play out. So, you know, we're advising people to use caution as they get in around this period of time. Um, but ultimately, as you're into I and mean, what you're seeing right now is just a massive disparity in the market. The difference between value and growth mm -hmm. is nearly 30 percent and small cap and large cap disparity is gigantic. So we're really encouraging people to make active decisions, focusing on high quality companies. And I think if they do that, they'll, they'll narrow their range of outcomes and end up as pretty happy long-term uh, investors. One final question for your own company. Do you think you're going to have people permanently working from home who weren't doing that before? Or are it, once you guys can all get back to normal, are you going to be back to normal? Yeah, uh, my guess is that that will be part of our going forward model. Um, we have uh, offices all around the world. And... Um, yeah, our Hong Kong office is almost fully back. They were actually not that impacted despite their proximity to, uh, to uh, China. Uh, our New York office has uh, no one back in it yet, and Kansas City just has a few. But I think as, as for an ongoing permanent model, not only is it a great measure of resiliency, but productivity is extraordinarily high, and it's become very acceptable with our clients to have even intimate conversations via Zoom or WebEx, things that historically I would have had to travel around the world or people would have had to come to me to have a conversation of the quality that we're having, and now it's become acceptable. So I think not only are we not going to probably reoccupy the physical space that we used to uh, around the world, but I also think we're going to have a lot less travel and higher productivity. It's, it's fascinating, and I think that's part of the reason you see also in the market with the disparity I was talking about early, yeah. earlier, the technology stocks doing so exceptionally well and the more, more uh, you know, mainstream industrials kind of lagging. Absolutely. The airlines weeping, uh, as they hear you describe that part's commercial real estate. Uh, but it's absolutely true. Yes. Jonathan, it's been great to have you. Best of luck with the tournament. Uh, we're going to be speaking with Charles Barkley next hour. Maybe you can get, you know, Patrick Mahomes and put in a good word for us, too. Okay, one last thing. I'll see if I can get it up here if I have two seconds. You asked about masks. I'm from Kansas City. Somebody dropped this in my room last night. <laughs> I thought it was pretty clever. So, <laughs> Yeah, they're not playing either. You, uh, you know, They're going to be on you. No, if, not at all. If anything happens. Jonathan right. Thomas, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. We appreciate it today. Take care, Kelly. He is the uh, president and CEO bye -bye. of American Century Investments. And you can catch the Celebrity Golf Tournament tonight at 5 p.m. Eastern on NBC Sports and tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern on NBC. Speaking of reopening, Disney is reopening Disney World tomorrow in Florida, a move many are questioning. Florida's overall COVID cases are rising at an alarming rate, up 545 percent since reopening. Orange County, where the park is located, has seen an average of 575 new cases a day in the past week. But consumers aren't deterred. When the park began taking reservations, a surge of interest crashed the system. The stock could use a bump. It's down 17 percent this year and 22 percent from its 52-week high. Uh, that's the case for Disney. And visitors, uh, how crucial is the return of visitors to the theme parks for Disney's bottom line? For that and more, let's turn to Julia Borston. Julia? Well, Kelly, there is a lot riding on Disney's move to start reopening its Orlando park. This Disney World Park is Disney's biggest theme park all around the world. And summer is usually the park's busiest season. 
And the Parks and Resorts division was Disney's largest division by revenue and its biggest earnings growth driver last year. Now, this past quarter, Disney lost an estimated $1 billion due to those domestic parks closures, according to analyst Michael Nathanson. Disney is starting its phased reopening of Disney World in Orlando tomorrow after yesterday it started reopening downtown Disney. That's the outdoor mall by its Anaheim Park with masks and social distancing, of course. Now, Disney World is implementing a range of health precautions. In addition to limiting capacity, masks and social distancing, it's mandating temperature checks, cashless purchases and systems so visitors can digitally reserve their places in line to avoid crowds around those rides. Now, some of the upside potential for Disney does hinge on Disney+. Plus. That's expected to report growing numbers, bolstered in part by its exclusive debut of Hamilton last weekend. There are a number of other big questions ahead for Disney. For ESPN and ABC, we're waiting to see whether live sports restart is planned, beginning, of course, with the NBA. And then there's the future of theatrical movie releases. They have been totally on hold. Next up for Disney is Mulan. It's been delayed several times. Now it's set to be released at the end of August. Kelly? A lot at stake tomorrow on how that goes. Uh, Julia, thank you so much. Julia Borston. Coming up, Tesla is, get this, now the 16th largest stock in the S&P by market cap. Tesla is the 16th biggest stock in America, basically. It's bigger than Disney, bigger than Intel, it's bigger than Merck, it's bigger than Coca-Cola. Does that mean it should join the S&P? We will explore that. Plus, there are 2 million black-owned businesses in the U.S., but less than 10% of them have enough money to have paid staff. We're going to speak with a woman who's trying to change that and why one analyst says it's hard to look beyond the headwinds for Beyond Meat. Their sell call is ahead after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on markets. Now, it's a little bit of a counter-trend day here on Wall Street. Why? The Dow's up about 200 points, three-quarters of a percent right now. The S&P's up half of a percent, but the Nasdaq only just turned back positive. And as you can see on the sectors behind me, technology is one of the sectors in the red today. It's uh, down about four-tenths of a percent, Healthcare off half a percent, real estate. Those are your three decliners. Everybody else is pretty much in the green today, and we are led by the financials. They're up more than 2 percent, energy up there, too. You utilities, materials. So again, a little bit of a different feel than the typical tech ascendant stay-at-home trade that we've been used to in the last several sessions. Here are some of the individual movers this hour, and we're going to start with shares of Netflix, which are jumping after Goldman raised its price target to a new street high of $670. Says Netflix should report another surprisingly high subscriber growth number that's not already priced in. The shares up 7% to 5.45 today. And as you can imagine from the financials, the bank stocks are having a good day. J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs are leading the Dow right now. They're up better than 3%. Even Wells Fargo seeing a nice pop after being upgraded to outperform over at Baird. That's a 4% lift for WFC. And finally, Redfin is moving lower. It got downgraded to sector perform at RBC today. They're worried about valuation. After nearly doubling in the past three months for shares of Redfin, they are giving up 9% today. Let's get over to Sue Herrera now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. 
As coronavirus cases continue to rise in Texas, Nooses County is asking FEMA to send a second trailer to help their morgue deal with an overflow of deaths. The county's medical examiner's office also requesting supplies for autopsies. In Arizona, where COVID tests are in short supply, the state will begin rolling out new saliva tests tomorrow. They are designed by scientists at Arizona State University for widespread testing. They are a partnership between ASU and the state's health department, and they have already been administered to 6,000 people. Going against decades of precedent, the Wisconsin Supreme Court has overturned three of four budget vetoes issued by Governor Tony Evers. Wisconsin's governor has one of the most powerful vetoes in the country, despite decades of voter-imposed limitations. And a female National Guard soldier has earned the title of Green Beret, the first woman to do so since the Pentagon opened all combat jobs to women in 2016. The Green Berets were one of the last forces in the Army without any women. You are up to date. That's the news update this hour. Kelly, back to you. All right, Sue, thank you. Meantime, small businesses across the country have been upended by the pandemic. Minority-owned businesses in particular have been hit the hardest, with the number of black businesses dropping 41 percent, according to the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. My next guest works directly with black entrepreneurs to grow their businesses and recently mobilized consumers to buy from them, helping raise more than $7 million in about two weeks. For more, I'm joined by Kezia Williams, founder and CEO of The Black Upstart and lead organizer of the hashtag MyBlackReceipt initiative. Kezia, welcome. It's good to have you. Yes. Hi, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So how, here. how much bigger a movement do you think this is going to be? Oh, I think that this is going to be a change in behavior. I love that you talked about us spending $7 million over the course of a little over two weeks. Um, My Black Receipt, just to backtrack, was a movement where we asked Black consumers and also allies to intentionally spend in Black-owned businesses from Juneteenth through to July 6th. We did set an initial goal of getting them to spend up to $5 million. And as you mentioned, we exceeded that goal with having over $7 million spent in less in two weeks. We feel like the My Black Receipt is a public endorsement or public validation of a monetary exchange between Black entrepreneurs and also Black consumers. Yeah. It's not a carefully worded tweet on Twitter about buying Black. It's not a carefully uh, curated meme about buying Black. It's not just a post asking people to tag and buy from Black-owned businesses up underneath an Instagram post, but really what it's about is having Black entrepreneurs receive sales from Black consumers and allies day after day day after day. Currently, the Black dollar only circulates within the Black community for six hours. And so with my Black receipt, we asked for protesters to put their receipt where their protest was Hmm. day after day after day for 16 consecutive days. So buying Black didn't have to be in response to just corporate misbehavior, like maybe putting a Black boy in a monkey and lace shirt, but to have people really buy Black habitually. Absolutely. And, And I should add, again, that what you work on this Black upstart is really about trying to kind of help that next generation of Black entrepreneurs. Tell us how that works, uh, some of the success that you've had, and what more you need in terms of resources. Yes. So currently, according to the last U.S. Census, there are 2.56 million Black entrepreneurs, but only 109,000 of them have the capacity to employ at least one person. With Black Upstart, we teach Black entrepreneurs not just how to start a business, but how to start a business that can scale so that they can employ other people. We like to say that Black people do need more jobs, but we also need more Black job creators so that Black people specifically don't have to go begging other people when we are capable of giving ourselves in regards 
to employment. For Black Upstart, we've expanded to serve 12 markets. We've also served internationally in Southern Africa. And the resources that we need really include helping to expand My Black Receipts so that we can help Black entrepreneurs on our list, which there are 8,000 people on our Black business list get the resources that they need to scale, but also motivate Black consumers to buy Black 365 days a year. Well, if only you had a little more enthusiasm, Kezia, I think this could go a long way. <laughs> yes. I know my energy level is on 10, Kelly, I, all the time. I love it. Thank you so much for being here. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much. That's Bye-bye. Kezia Williams from The Black Upstart. For more on her story and the growth of diversity and entrepreneurship, be sure to visit CNBCMakeIt.com. And coming up is TikTok's time in the U.S. running out. That's the question being asked as Secretary of Defense Pompeo says it could be under consideration. We'll tell you why it may be more talk than action, plus all the latest TikTok headlines this hour. And a huge change in Uber's pricing strategy you'll want to know about. And finally, as Nevada backtracks on some of its reopening plans, what could it mean for the casino stocks? We're back in two. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Michael Santoli, Contessa Brewer, and John Fort. It is great to have everybody here. We're going to kick it off with Contessa. Some big news on Las Vegas. It may be losing its reopening bet. The Nevada governor ordering bars in the state's two most populous counties to close tonight. This would include Las Vegas. They're also issuing a stern warning about pools, water parks, and gyms. Nevada has seen cases spike by a thousand yesterday. Contessa, big question is, is it, you know, kaput for the restaurants for the time being then? And what happens to the casinos in Vegas? Okay, so the restaurants are still open. They're still allowed to serve alcohol at the tables themselves. But if there's a bar inside the restaurant, that bar is closed down. In other words, no customers going in and ordering from the bar. And the restaurants are limited to seating parties of fewer than six people, which would... You know, it's going to eliminate any of these uh, bachelorette parties or or bachelor parties that head to Vegas. And if you picture the last time you were in Vegas and now erase the bar scene from those memories. And the real question is, will that be enough to discourage people from driving, say, from California or Arizona or Idaho into Las Vegas? Right now, that drive in traffic is what is driving any pickup in the economy in Las Vegas and in Reno as well. Uh, So it's going to be important to watch. The casinos, I'm going to watch to see the impact. El Dorado, Red Rock Resorts, uh, Boyd is a big locals gaming casino, and then the strip giants, MGM and Caesars, which has multiple properties. But remember, just yesterday, Caesars announced that Bally's is reopening. It's been going so well, and their uh, per-person spend has been increasing, and that's happening around the country. I was going to say, I'm not the best person to picture Vegas without the bars because it wouldn't really be taking a lot away from our last visit. So I'm going to let Mike or John (laughs) maybe speak to this one. uh, Because we're so wild. Yeah, because you guys, (laughs) you should see these guys on the weekend, man. All right, I'll jump in here. I mean, I I think 
I think the Vegas scene, the Vegas reputation is anything goes. And that really doesn't work when you're in a pandemic. On the one hand, Vegas is really great at having monitoring and rules uh, around security when they're securing their money uh, and when they're securing their environment. But I don't think they've been great about communicating safety uh, during the pandemic. So I contrast that with at least what we'd expect out of Disney World. That, that's been, you know, Disney's been very strict about the uh, environment for parks from a safety perspective. Maybe Vegas needs to take a page from there. Mike, thoughts on the stock? Actually, I, wait, wait, wait. I got to just answer that, though. Wynn Resorts was the first out of the box, the big, the, that I know of, the biggest public company to lay out in pages and pages of documents of what safety and sanitation and cleaning and health standards would look like, testing. Caesars has now made testing mandatory for all its employees. If the gaming regulators and the governor have been reticent to, for instance, there was only a mask mandate within the last couple of weeks, it's only because they were hoping that people would go out and protect themselves. And what you saw that first opening weekend at the Cosmopolitan, it was clear. They were like, well, there's no rule that I have to wear a mask. Once the mandate went into place, it started to change. Michael, last word. Yeah, no, I mean, I think everybody realizes everything's a trade-off and a compromise and a constrained experience. Uh, and I, that's not going to change. I also think it's a real-world experiment going on. Other locales learning that bars and gyms seem like the big oversteps in yeah. the reopening efforts in, in, in Vegas and elsewhere. Exactly, which is extra tough uh, for that area. All right, let's move on. Talk about Tesla, because I do want people's thoughts on this one. Stock is up again, driving to new heights seemingly every day. Shares are up 47% in the last two weeks. And as of yesterday, guys, it's the 16th largest stock basically in America. It's good fortunes have investors wondering if it would join the S&P 500, Mike, which would be a huge conundrum to the funds tracking the index, right? Yes, it would call, It will cause a flutter. And I do think it's a matter of when and not if. You know, the, what, what needs to happen in terms of meeting S&P standards is Tesla needs kind of a cumulative four-quarter uh, period of profitability. They have a net income standard to get into the S&P 500. What is unusual is how big it would be upon entry, as you say, uh, Kelly. So it would be in the top 20. Uh, it's really not that common. Usually it's an upstart company. It's also getting very conspicuous, I would note, all this market value that's building up outside the S&P. Tesla's over $250 billion. Wow. And then if you want to add Spotify, Shopify, Zoom video, all four of those companies together are more than half a trillion dollars sitting outside the S&P. So it is going to be an issue. You'll probably have to sell down. All the index funds will probably have to sell down, who knows, 1% uh, of all the other stocks to, to fit Tesla in there. And in the Reuters article about this, they mentioned the Yahoo entry into the S&P 1999, which was a massive event. It was also very big upon entry. That also is considered, by the way, a little bit of the, the first stages of the peaking of that internet bubble for what that's worth. And that's, John, I turn to you, I mean, not to kind of have to make a call on whether this is the top for Tesla one way or the other, but <laughs> short that. sellers are down $18 billion this year, $4 billion in July. I mean, the stock chart for Tesla, even over the past year, looks almost parabolic. Yeah, I mean, this is, to me, is one of those be careful what you wish for situations. I don't think anybody... And even the Tesla bulls are looking at it as some bastion of stability, right? And that, that's kind of what you think of when you think of the S&P 500 in general. I mean, there are people who either think it's going to go 10x from here or it's going to go down 90% from here in, in a lot of cases. So, and, and then you got Elon Musk himself. I mean, he's volatile uh, and, and he's key to the stock. So I don't know. I wouldn't put this, and I, I know you weren't, Mike, in, in the same bucket as uh, Shopify. I mean, Toby Lutke right. is, is, you know, is a bastion of stability, certainly uh, compared to Elon Musk. 
Interesting. Uh, well, I thought the Yahoo analogy was super fascinating, too. I'd be yeah. surprised if they put it in the S&P 500, but at some point they might just have to. All right, let's talk a little Uber next. The company is rolling out a new feature that allows drivers to set their own rates. It only applies to the state of California. Uber's doing it as part of surge pricing. But AB5 advocates in the state are already accusing Uber of trying to circumvent labor laws with the feature. Since the ruling itself, AB5 went into effect, guys, Uber shares are only up about 11 percent. Contessa, this does seem, I mean, the fact they're only doing it in California tells you that they're struggling to cope with the legal landscape there, right? Well, Uber admitted that it's instituting this because of AB5. They're trying to figure it out and they're saying, look, we've done a survey our drivers prefer to be independent contractors. And then you go back and you look at the methodology of the Uber-initiated survey, and it doesn't look like it. they surveyed all drivers. I mean, the real question here is about whether Uber drivers are employees and deserve the benefits that go along with being a full-time employee. And the state of California has said yes. So Uber and Lyft and others are going back. They're trying to get back on the ballot this fall with a, a carve out for this gig economy that would say you're in an independent contractor and you get to do what you want. But it's clear they've tested this out in, in Palm Springs and a few other places in California. Um, and the real question that you have if you use Uber is, what does this mean in that race to the bottom? Like if, if an Uber driver says, all right, I'm going to set my rates two times higher and he doesn't get any rides, hmm. he's going to have to keep setting his rates lower. But is it good, John, that at least he can set his rates or is the company trying to say, hey, look, if our drivers can set their own prices, they're not really employees? Kelly, I think this is fantastic. I hope <laughs> they bring it to New Jersey and I think they're not going far enough. Huh. Drivers should be able to set their own rates and we should have more visibility into the data about exactly what is good or bad about different classes of drivers. I don't know about you, but over the last couple of years, I've gotten into some pretty skanky Ubers and Lyfts. Like they smell, you know, the car, the stains on the, on the upholstery. I mean, if I, I pay twice as much in almost any rideshare to be guaranteed an extra high level uh, of service. And I'm not talking about the Uber black and the premium stuff that's you really overpriced. You want your own overpriced. music. Like, you I, want, you know, a, the be, right scent around you. It can be a regular car, but just like a nice car that doesn't stink. <laughs> I pay extra for that. So, John, yes. I'm not sure Kelly appreciates you prompting me to m make a New Jersey joke right now. <laughs> exactly. I live in New Jersey, too. I know, I know. Well, I, I haven't used it myself. I've been using it for my mother-in-law and people get back from the train station. John, now I'm feeling like guilty, like I should have been checking up a little bit on their experience. But here's my question for you. If, if what you describe happens, won't all of us looking at the app be confused by like, wait a minute, I'm getting a driver who says this is going to be a $50 ride, but what if there's another one who says it's only going to be 30 I mean, how do I even sort through those options. Well, that's why I think they need to make more data available about the level of service in the Uber. Even if it's the you know base level Uber, I think the, the data is the answer here. And that's how the drivers can differentiate themselves. And if you're willing to pay a little bit more, for a nice experience, maybe even you'll recognize you know, what, what drivers you'll get at that level of experience, great. Quick last word, Contessa. John, you're kind of, you're kind, you're kind of making the argument for Uber, though, because they yeah. say, look, the drivers are using our platform. We're, a, we're an app, and the drivers are using our app. It's a tech service. And so if that becomes part of the, the argument that they're going to make and that drivers can set their own rates using this particular app, they, they certainly, it makes it a little different than if they're setting their own rates as a private car service in New York, New Jersey, or Los Angeles. It's so true. And, and you're right. And maybe this is a preview of what's to come if this is their answer for being a high-value platform without dealing with the regulation. That'll be super interesting. All right, before we go, we want to just talk about TikTok. There's so much news uh, to get to on this one today, but let's start with the phenom 
um, Ninja, who has announced that he is deleting TikTok off of all of his devices. Guys, he's calling out the platform's ties to China. Just the latest high-profile embarrassment for this social media company. The U.S. is considering joining India and banning it. The app suffered a severe outage yesterday that seemed to wipe out likes, Mike, which is a horror. I mean, what would your daughters do <laughs> if they couldn't have TikTok? They'd have a lot more time on their hands, I think. And didn't we also just get headlines that Amazon is asking its employees to delete the app as well on security yes. uh, concerns? It is very interesting in the sense that, you know, private sector along with governments being uh, concerned about this. I am not convinced that most of the end users are particularly concerned about these uh, privacy issues. Uh, that's, you know, remains to be seen as to whether that it's going to be uh, kind of the savior of the platform in this country or not. But I do know that one of the reasons it grew so fast is because of the kind of addictiveness of the of the technology itself oh, yeah. and the algorithm. So I don't know if it's easily replicable. I know everyone says, well, there's a, you know, the Facebook, Instagram kind of version of this uh, as well. But right. uh, it'll be interesting. No, I think if anything, it's a boon for YouTube. Probably its closest competitor. Snapchat shares, John, I was checking today on, on the Pompeo day. They were up big in that announcement. Today, they're down two and a half percent. So not seeing a huge move there. But I, it's just interesting to me that Ninja would do it because I just wonder if that's telling us that kind of it's out there now. Um, as kind of the, the, the kind of hip thing to do, the woke thing to do, whatever. I, I think it is, but Kelly, I think people's focus is in the wrong place. Yes, people should be concerned about TikTok and where U.S. citizen data is going when a company is based overseas. But it shouldn't be like a China issue. Uh, I mean, what if Cuba comes up with an app or Venezuela or North Korea, right? It, there should be a policy that's based on securing uh, citizen data and then it should apply to everybody. And yes, that'll affect uh, companies based in China. It, it should affect companies based everywhere. All right, we'll leave it there. Great stuff, guys. Thank you all. Mike Santoli, Contessa Brewer, and John Ford in Rapid Fire. Speaking of TikTok, it has already been banned in India. And will the U.S. be next? If so, would it be a permanent ban or not? Luke Ventures' Gene Muster joins us to uh, explain why he thinks it could be more of a temporary ban. But first, for four years, President Trump has said he can't release his tax returns because he's under an IRS audit. For the average taxpayer, most audits are much shorter than that. What you need to know about the process and what to expect if it happens to you next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Tax day is just five days away after the Trump administration moved the deadline from April due to the pandemic. Sharon Epperson is here now with what taxpayers need to know about the auditing process and how it works. Sharon? Well, Kelly, you know, there's been a lot of talk about audits and tax returns coming from the White House. And here's what average taxpayers need to know. The IRS says that audits can take several years to complete, but most audits take three to six months. That's according to the American Institute of CPAs, which is the largest organization of accounting professionals. And we surveyed some members of the AICPA's Financial Literacy Commission. They said that a more complex audit, that one that requires an in-person interview with an IRS official at your home or business or an in-depth document review, could take up to a year. But the reality is very few taxpayers are audited. The IRS says only 0.45% of individual income tax returns were examined in the fiscal year 2019. But you still need to know what could trigger an audit. And tax pros say that audits may be more likely with higher levels of income, cash earnings or self-employment income, or if you have deductions that are unusually high in relation to a taxpayer's income. So you want to make sure you keep your receipts for any of those deductions that you're claiming. And Kelly, do you know the way that 
the IRS will contact you if you're going to be audited? Oh, man, something scary. It's not scary. It's a letter. It huh. comes in the mail. They're not going to email you. They're not going to call you. They're not going to post something on your social media account. They're going to send you something in the mail. So if you get something any other way, that is a sign that it's a red flag to you that there may be fraud involved. Um, I wanted to ask you one more question, Kelly. Sure. If you're thinking about what should be included in your tax return in terms of your income, do you think you should include gambling winnings, um, income, interest from your savings account, or income from a side gig? Can I phone a friend? My mother-in-law is a tax expert, Sharon. <laughs> I, if I don't answer this correctly, I might be answer. out of the family. I'll give you a quick answer. It's all of them, all of the above. And people don't realize, particularly with gambling winnings, that those are considered earned income and need to be included on your tax return. So make sure that you're careful when you're preparing a return, if you're doing it at the last minute this weekend. And if you want to just test your knowledge on taxes, check out CNBC.com, invest in you, get a tax quiz. Maybe that, you could take it. I think I should take it to uh, find out what I, <laughs> what I still need to learn. Sharon, thank you so much. It's super important stuff. And just again, sure. to remind everybody, it is July 15 this year. Sharon Epperson with all the latest for us. And still ahead, the Trump administration says it's considering banning TikTok due to privacy concerns. Just how bad that could be for the company's bottom line, that's next. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. New reports out in just the past half hour say Amazon is asking employees to delete TikTok from any mobile device that would use Amazon email. In relation to Amazon, TikTok now releasing a statement saying user security is of the utmost importance to TikTok. We are fully committed to respecting the privacy of users. It's not just Amazon, though. The companies come under a lot of scrutiny here in the U.S. The Trump administration saying this week it's worried the app makes private data available to the Chinese government and is considering a ban. Loop Ventures founder and managing partner Gene Munster is here now to discuss. Gene, first of all, how big of uh, for TikTok? I mean, I would imagine losing the U.S. would be a huge blow to their financials. It is, Kelly. Maybe just taking a step back, why we care about this. This is the largest private tech company $100 billion was their last round. There's 65 million users in the U.S. About half of those are under the age of 18. But when you think about their total user base, it's about one-third the size of Facebook. Facebook's current market cap is just under $700 billion. So this gap between where Facebook's market cap is relative to the users and TikTok is still significant. So when we generally frame in what's at stake here, we're talking about an additional one or $200 billion could be created for TikTok to go after the U.S. opportunity. And uh, one further piece to mention is the TikTok platform is ideal for monetization. These are 15-second videos, hmm. endless number of ad spots. And so uh, there's a lot at stake for TikTok to get the U.S. right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this comes after the news just in the past 24 hours that Ninja, the video game superstar, said he's taking TikTok off his phone, which, again, I think is important as a sign of what kind of the general public is doing. Also, TikTok was named in one of the Apple um, iOS vulnerabilities that let some apps, including TikTok, use anything you would copy and paste it on your phone. And for some people, that could include credit card numbers, social security numbers. I mean, really, really sensitive personal information. Yeah, as we weigh this, the, the gives and takes about will ultimately TikTok be banned. It is uh, what is uh, clear ultimately is it is very difficult to predict how this plays out in the near term. We could very well see a ban. We could not see a ban. I'm not one 
to pick the middle of the road. I like to have a clear view one way or the other. In this case, it is still just too difficult to call. But in the case of uh, TikTok, let's go down the road a little bit that they ultimately do get banned in the U.S., uh, that this is still a company that we think will see the light of day in the U.S., despite any bans, because I think some of the issues that we're talking about uh, will be corrected, given the massive amount of wealth creation that this company can build if they get the U.S. right. Maybe someone else can do it. You know, Snap shares are not up today, but why not say TikTok's banned? American company can go start it and basically do the same thing. They could. There's a lot around a brand. I think that when you that experience that 15 second video is powerful. And so a lot on the Internet can be replicated. Uh, but that first mover brand is pretty powerful. So, uh, yes, ultimately, uh, Snapchat and, and Facebook are going to go aggressively after this uh, type of a product, this experience. They're already testing their versions of it. Uh, but you've got this uh, the way I would best describe it. One uh, user recently described their behavior as addicted uh, yeah. to uh, TikTok, and I think that uh, that is a hard thing to break that uh, that brand uh, awareness. Got people through the pandemic. They were in my neighborhood doing dances. Uh, we'll see if it uh, if that's kind of the end of the road. Gene, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you, Gene Munster, talking about TikTok's future. Thanks for watching the Exchange today. That does it for us. You've been listening to the Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>